Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you are transformed by the word of God in the following message. And we trust you are using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. Well, our message tonight is also about alignment. If we are not in line with the work God is doing in us, we too will be ruined. And thus, what I believe we will see in, in tonight's passage in Second Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, what we will see is that we must work to align with Christ's work in us. Again, we must work to align with Christ's work in us. Again, if you didn't hear me, that's uh, second, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. I'll let you guys turn there, and then I will pray briefly. Sweet. Let's pray. Holy Father, we are so grateful for the work that you have done in your church throughout history, and we are, we are glad, Lord, and, and, and thankful that you continue that work today. Lord, from, from the beginning, you have shaped this world with your word. You have called your people by your word, and, and you have shaped your people by your word. And so, Lord, we pray, uh, continue that work today. Use your work to shape me and, and, and all those who are here for our good as a, as a show of your grace and for your glory, O oh Lord. Please shape us tonight. In your name, amen. As I said, we will see tonight that we must work to align with Christ's work within. I believe we will see this in two works. In verses 12 through 13, we see the work of God. And in verses 14 through 18, we see the work of God's people. Again, 12 and 13, the work of God. And then 14 and 18 through 18, we see the work of God's people. So if you would, please join me in verse 12, where it reads, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, note that word there, obeyed, it's, it's, it's central to the thrust of this text, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So essentially what he's saying there, as you have always obeyed, Regardless of whether or not I am present, keep obeying. You know, last year, if you were here with us, we preached on the, the central message of the Reformation, the central message of the Bible, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Essentially, that, that the work of salvation is completely and entirely 100% the work of God. That was the message that Martin Luther preached in the Reformation. And if you've studied the Reformation at all, people didn't exactly love that message, at least not everyone. And many people pushed back against it. His opponents did not necessarily like that message. And essentially the accusation that was cast at Martin Luther was that if that's true, if all we have to do is believe in this Jesus, then you've just rendered pretty much the entire Bible useless. The, the law of God is thus rendered useless in the life of a Christian. 
at least according to his opponents. And, and upon that historical fact, I thought it was appropriate tonight to, to take up their argument, to argue against it, not, not so that I could correct a bunch of dead guys who died hundreds of years ago, but because it is that same train of thought that haunts the church around the world. And it is that same train of thought that haunts our hearts today. And so I pose the question to you. If we are saved by faith, must we work? If we are saved by faith, does the law of God have any, any meaning in your life? Do you, are you called to obey the law of God? And, and I'm sure most of you here, I'm guessing by the looks on your faces that you would say yes. But then I, I want to push a little bit further. Could you explain why to these children over here? Could you explain to a child why the law of God has, has an effect on your life? And could you do so without straying back into earning instead of faith? You know, when I, when I first read this passage, that line, work out your salvation by fear and trembling, I thought it was wrong. I thought somebody misprinted the Bible. Somebody messed, the translator screwed up here. And even as I heard the first man preach it to me, I kind of thought his interpretation of it was wrong. See, we're, we're tempted to read that, work out your salvation, to be saying, figure out your salvation. Get it sorted out with fear and trembling because Jesus is coming back, so you, you better figure out your salvation. But I, I've, I've found over time that there's a, a little three-letter word in there that, that really helps us understand. It's that word, out. Work out your salvation. See, the, the Philippians, the, the people who this is being written to, they've already received salvation. They've already put their faith in Jesus. The work of salvation has already been worked into them. They must now work out what has already been worked into their hearts. Work out, church, what has already been worked into you. I had a teacher in school. She was one of those teachers that every school has. She's that, that sweet lady who is wants nothing more than to see her most difficult students reach their full potential. For whatever reason, I was the center of her focus often. And she worked very hard to see me reach my full potential. And so you could imagine her reaction one day when I responded to one of my classmates who, who was concerned about the, the results of an exam we had just taken. When I responded to that classmate in her hearing, saying, my motto has always been, Lowest expectations, no disappointment. I can remember very particularly her, her dropping her head down on her podium and, and being in complete dismay. See, she was doing a great work in me, or at least trying to. And it revealed, my, my words revealed that I was not working in line with what she was doing. Jesus is doing a great work in you, church. Are you working in line with what he is doing? God became one of us. He lived the perfect life that we could not and died the death that we deserved for our disobedience. Not so that we could wallow in shame, but that we could live lives of obedience as a result. This is the, the work that has been worked into us. The Holy Spirit has applied that work to you so that just as Jesus died and rose again, that your heart would be crucified with him and raised to newness of life. 
so that what would flow out of you would no longer be the disobedient works of a corrupted heart, but the obedient heart works of a resurrected heart. Salvation has been worked into you, church, so that obedience could be worked out of you. This is the work of God. Not, not our work. This is entirely and completely the work of God. As, as it says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you realize how broken we are? Do you realize how broken humanity is? I think we're, we're, we're pretty... We're pretty quick to realize as we read the news, as we see our loved ones pass away or fall ill, we're pretty quick to see the world is broken. We understand that when we, when we turn from God, we turn from the perfect relationship that he created us for, we broke the design that God had for us. And we broke the world as we did so. What I think we're slow to realize is that that includes us. Our hearts were corrupted with the rest of the world. Our minds were corrupted with the rest of the world. So apart from Jesus, we don't, we don't want to follow God. And apart from Jesus, our minds don't, aren't able to. But it says here that it's God's good pleasure to change our will, that is, to change our desire to obey, and to change our work, that is, the ability to obey. It's God's delight. It's interesting there in the passage that Ben said there that God delighted in those Israelites. He delights in you, church. He delights to change your want, to change your will, and to change your ability to obey. Apart from Jesus, our hearts don't want to. And apart from Jesus, our minds aren't capable of obeying. But this is the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is, is that all who believe might find salvation. But the power of the, the gospel is, is not just the power of salvation to all who believe. The gospel is the power of, of sanctification to all who believe. This is the power of God. The gospel propels, church, every ounce of our obedience. All, all the work that I'm going to talk about tonight, it's all being propelled forward, fueled by the gospel. If you're here today and, and your heart has not been crucified and raised anew with Jesus... You can turn from wrongdoing right now and put your confidence in him. And a miracle will actually take place. That heart crucifixion will actually happen when you put your trust in Jesus. Your heart will die and raise anew. And God will actually give you a new heart that wants to turn away from sin. I know because that, that is the power of the gospel. Otherwise, we have no hope. If it was by our own power that we had to come to Jesus, we never would have come at all. And if it was by, the, by our power that we had to obey Jesus, we have no hope of ever obeying. Just as, as Martin Luther pointed out that it was entirely hopeless for us to ever come to God. It is entirely hopeless for us to, to continue in faith apart from the power of the gospel. As we shift now from the work of God to the work of God's people. I want to actually just double down on that. That though I've separated these into two different sections, they very properly belong one on top of the other. 
The, the, the work of God's people that we're gonna talk about now is all completely the work of God. God is the one at work in this. With that said, let's discuss the work of God's people. Where I, I hope we will see uh, what does the obedience flowing from a resurrected heart look like? Paul gives us three ways that we can work to align with Christ's work within. First, work to align your words with your salvation. Verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. To put it clearly, uh, plainly, grumbling doesn't align with the work of Christ in us. If, if, if we're four tires and the gospel's over here, our grumbling is that one tire that's shot it off over here after Eric crashed his car. It does not align with the work of God in us. Is there anyone, however, that should grumble? Anyone in the world whatsoever? Absolutely. Actually, most of the world, you realize, are, 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 are walking straight towards eternal misery. And thus, their, their miserable uh, way of speaking actually makes a lot of sense. Obviously, they have the breath of air in their lungs, which is the grace of God to them, which should clearly be used to, to praise his name. But I think you get my point that, that at least in comparison to us, their misery makes sense. Because they're, they're headed for gloom. They should be gloomy. But where's that leave us? We not only have air in our, our lungs, but we are headed for glory. Does, does grumbling align at all with people who are bound for glory? Grumbling not only does not align, though, it's actually worse than that. But uh, I think C.S. Lewis can, can explain this better than I. So but hear his words. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it. But just the grumble itself, going on forever like a machine, is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing, which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. I don't know if you could tell what he was saying there, but everything I've been saying to you all up until this point is predicated on who we are. We must do this obedience because we are Christ, because of who we are. What C.S. Lewis is actually saying there is that grumbling not only does not align, Grumbling actually has the power to change who we are. I, and I bring this up because that's exactly what happened to the Israelites in the passage we read a few moments ago. And that, that very, that very uh, uh, transforming of the, the Israelites was alluded to in verse 15, where it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. See, that's actually quoting Deuteronomy 32, where it says, they have dealt corruptly with him, that is God, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children, because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. 
because I, I've kind of pointed out already, it, it, that is pointing to the, throughout the Torah, where after the, the Israelites are, are delivered out of Egypt, they, they, time after time after time, turn to their favorite pastime of grumbling. And it's in, in Numbers 14 where that, that grumbling finally reaches its head, where, where the Israelites are, are faced with heading into the land of glory. But the spies come back with reports that there are big men there and highly fortified cities there. And in fear of these strong men and fortified cities, they turn to grumbling. They turn in fear from God to grumbling. And, and instead of being people headed into the land of glory, they turn around and they're sent back into the wilderness to die. Church, work to align with Christ's work within by working to align your words with Christ's work in you. Now, the second way we can align with Christ's work in us is to work to align with the teachings of Jesus. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Again, put it plainly, we're being called to obey the whole Bible. Again, if we, I, I realize that's kind of a tall task. It's, it's, a, it's a big book. There's a lot going on in there. There's a lot to do and a lot not to do. If we go back to the, the teacher I talked about earlier. I actually had her like multiple times throughout my life. So she, she had the privilege of even teaching me like grammar real young. And it, she didn't just like throw the entire dictionary at me, the entire English language on day one and say, do it all. Now on day one, she, she taught me about nouns. She taught me the proper use of nouns. And I, I, was, I was faced with my use of nouns, which I thought was the same, but was not. And I came to realize that I needed to change the way I use nouns. And I, I was conformed to the proper use of nouns. And the, the next day, we did the same thing with verbs, where I saw the proper use of verbs and saw my weird use of verbs, and it was corrected. And maybe I still don't use them right. But the point is the same here. Church, the, the application here is simple. Keep showing up. Keep sitting there and hearing the word of God preached. Keep opening the word day after day. Come face to face with the, the perfect humanity, the perfect human represent representative we saw this morning. And, and as you see him, you, our flaws will be shown as we look at the face of Jesus. And it is at that point that we realize we're not quite perfect. We see our flaws and we, we conform to the perfect man, Jesus himself. But conforming doesn't quite put it right. What we're talking about here isn't just flaws, it's, it's sins. And conforming in, in this sense means repenting. But unlike those we repent from often, those we've had in our lives, whether it be parents or friends or, or loved ones or teachers, we all kind of know those people who, who the, the saying is, uh, when they find out, there will be hell to pay. So we, 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 we go repenting to them in fear that, well, they, I could get forgiveness or there could be hell to pay. 
Church, the, the beauty of, of repenting in Jesus, when our confidence is in him, that fear does not exist. For in him, hell has already been paid. We do not fear the, the burn of repentance in Jesus. But we, we only experience the sweetness of repentance in Jesus. You know, if you ever burn your hand, you often run it under cool water. There's a moment when you're about to put your hand under the cool water to get relief, where you find yourself wondering, is this hot water that's going to, to hurt, or is it the cool water that's going to bring relief? You know, the, the power of the gospel that it, is that it transforms repentance so that we can always know it's, it will not be a burning feeling. It will only be relief, and it's actually better than that. It's not just the, the temporary relief of cool water on a burn. The touch of Jesus is, is actually transformation. It's healing. You can, you can come face to face with who you are in the scriptures and see your flaws and go to Jesus immediately and find healing. Have you ever seen a branch on the road when you're driving? And maybe it's not actually a real problem we have very often. But in order to get the branch out of your way, you have to pick it up. You have to put the weight, in a sense, on yourself to get it off. And when we, when we come face to face with our flaws in the scriptures, there, there is a moment there where the weight is put on. But because we're not just clinging to these teachings in the scripture, we're clinging to the person of Jesus. The weight is taken off immediately by him every single time. That is the, the sweetness of repentance in Jesus. So work to align with your salvation by living in line with the scriptures, by clinging to the word of God and clinging to Christ in the word. Our third and final way which we can work to live a life, work to align with who Christ is, work to align with Christ's work in us, is to work to live a life of self-sacrificial joy. Work to live a life of self-sacrificial joy. Verse 17, join me there, please. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now you notice there, it's actually Paul's the one being sacrificed here. So, so I, I, you might be kind of wondering, where, where am I, where am I, how am I throwing you into this with him? Well, to what purpose is Paul's uh, self-sacrifice serving here? Uh, he's being sacrificed on the, the offering of their faith. And it, it's that faith that we started with in the beginning that is being worked out in obedience. So the very purpose of, of Paul's sacrifice is to see obedience come to fruition in the church of Philippi. Obedience, yes, by, by not grumbling, by clinging to the word of God and Jesus in it, and also a life of self-sacrifice. He's using himself both as a, a motivator and an example. And I think we can support this if we look at the, the first half of chapter two, which we're not going to do because we don't have that much time, but that's homework. Go read that tonight. Um, but in, in Philippians chapter two, the, the first half, essentially his argument is that it is Christ's humiliation, Christ's self-sacrifice, that resulted in his exaltation. His laying down, his going down, sent him up. 
And it is his humiliation and exaltation in us that is worked out in our unity and our exaltation. So it's the same, the same humility in Jesus, in us, results in unity and glory. And here he's, he's kind of doubling back on his argument there, where he's once again showing himself as an example, just as Jesus is the substance, Paul is the example of a life of self-sacrifice. But this isn't a life of self-sacrifice that, that's headed towards misery. It's a life of self-sacrifice headed to glory. And so it's not a, a life of doom and gloom. It's a life of self-sacrifice fixed on glory and filled with joy. But the glory that you are headed to, the return of Christ that will come someday come, be your hope for glory and your, your hope that builds up joy even as you are sacrificed. We said earlier we, we would identify a way in which we could explain why we must work out, why we must work obedience to a child. If I haven't answered that question yet, let me just put it plainly, because of who we are. Who we are because of Jesus. And, and secondly, and it's still kind of the same question, but, or the same answer, but because of who died for you. Paul was willing to lay his life down to see obedience come to fruition in his church. And church, I, I work alongside them enough to tell you, you have wonderful pastors here who will willingly devote their lives to see obedience come to fruition in you. But infinitely better, infinitely more important, Jesus laid his life down so that you could live lives of obedience. With that, church, work out what Christ has worked in you. Or have live lives of obedience. And I will close with a prayer. And in the, in the light of Reformation Day, this is not my prayer, but the prayer of a second-generation reformer, John Calvin. Let's pray. Finally, O God and Father, for us who are gathered here in the name of your Son, Jesus, make us rightly acknowledge without hypocrisy the ruin that is ours by nature and the condemnation we deserve because of our miserable and disordered life, so that we may see there is nothing good in us and that our flesh and blood cannot take possession of your kingdom. Lead us to give ourselves entirely to your dear Son, Jesus, our Lord, the only Savior and Redeemer, with all our affection and firm confidence, so that as he dwells in us, he might put to death our old selves, and renew us for a better life, by which your name, as it is holy and worthy, might be exalted and glorified. Please, Lord, may this be. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by God's word, and for more info, for joining us for a worship service, for taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.